Father, uh, as we come this morning, God, we are asking You, um, we are challenging You, God, just like Your Word tells us to ask You things and You will answer. So all of us need something this week that we can go home with, God. Maybe some things we need to start doing or quit doing. Whatever that is, God, You will hear our prayers. So that's what we are asking You. And we are asking You in the precious name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Deanie. Studying for the message this past week, I stumbled across something that I have never heard of nor seen before. It's kind of surprising that I haven't, given the fact that it is as large as New York City. 4,082 miles long, sitting at 11,995 feet in the nation of Bolivia, is what is known as the Bolivian Salt Flats. It is one of the natural wonders of the world, yet I've never heard of it. Listen to those stats again. It is 4,082 feet long, and it sits at 11,995 feet above sea level. It's huge. Given its immense size and its bright white color, NASA can actually see it from space and they use it to calibrate satellites. There's actually a story that floats around that when Neil Armstrong was orbiting the Earth, the first time he saw it was during the rainy season. When he saw it, he reported back that he had just passed a massive glacier. The Bolivia salt flax has grown lately and popularity given uh, the rise of the Star Wars movies here of late. The Last Jedi, a good portion of that movie was filmed in the nation of Bolivia at the Salt Flats. Today, people want to go there so that they can see that location. It has also risen in prominence because it has the largest lithium deposit in the world. And today, in our technologically driven world, lithium is a part of computers, cell phones, batteries, everything we do. So this place is changing the economy of the entire nation. And it's doing it in dramatic ways. More than anything, it has become a tourist attraction. And most people want to be there during the rainy season so that they can see what Neil Armstrong did. For a few weeks out of every year when the rains come and they overflow the lakes that surround the salt flats, there is a thin layer of water that goes across this entire massive area, turning it into a gigantic mirror. And it is stunning. Take a look at this. Here's just a few pictures of it. People that go there during the rainy season, they tell you that when the clouds are in the sky and reflecting off of the flats, it's as if you were walking in the clouds yourself. I want to check this place out. It's now on our list of places to go. Who knows if we'll ever be there, but I want to check this place out. Obviously, you can drive to it, so it's become accessible for people to get there and experience it. Those that have use the most unique terminology to describe it. Take a look at this. They say it is the place where heaven meets earth. When the water is across the entire flat sitting that close to the clouds, it is the place where heaven meets earth. 
I don't know that the people that have said that truly understand the depth of theology that they are communicating when they say that. When it is like the surface of a mirror and it is the place where heaven meets earth, I don't think they have any idea of the biblical truth that they are sharing. Because mirrors throughout the Bible are used to communicate some incredible things. Mirrors throughout the Bible help us understand things about God and about ourselves. Mirrors, as we find them revealed throughout Scripture, become the place where heaven meets earth. They really do. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I I don't know of very many passages about mirrors, so I'm not sure how that works. Well, don't feel bad if you don't. There are only five of them in all of the Bible. Five different places that talk about mirrors, but each one has a very unique application. Here they are, all five of them. Number one speaks of the sovereignty of God. It's found in Job chapter 37, verse 18. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 23, using the idea of a mirror, the Bible speaks about the judgment of God. And then in Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, it speaks about the presence of God, using a mirror to illustrate it. Number four, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, the Bible speaks of our understanding of God, still using the idea of a mirror and reflection. And then number five, in James chapter 1, James writes about the power of the Word of God, and he uses a mirror to describe it. Now, in each of these situations, we can find very loose and at times very close connections to a mirror being equated with the Bible, with the Word of God. And when we look deeply into it, it's going to reflect something back to us that may be something about God, and it may very well be something about ourselves. And when we are really looking intently into the mirror that is the Bible, the Word of God, we're going to see both. We're going to see things about the character and the nature of God and we're going to see things about our own character and nature. It is where heaven and earth meet. And that shouldn't be surprising to us given the fact that the writer of Hebrews would say this about the Bible. This is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God, the Bible, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we look deeply into the Bible, the writer of Hebrews would teach us that it has the ability to penetrate right through, right through. We often want to believe that the Bible only judges our actions, that it's full of a bunch of do's and do nots, but that's not the case. Hebrews itself would teach us that when we are judged by the Word of God, when we look intently into the Word of God, what it's going to judge is the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. It's going to go well past our actions. It's going to go well past the mistakes that we might make and look directly at what's inside of us. It's going to reveal who we are. The same thing happens when we look into a mirror. It reveals who we are. It reveals what we look like. It reveals what we're doing. You know how a mirror works. We look into it so that we can see clearly and plainly what we might not see without it. The same thing is true of the Bible. Those five things that were just listed up here, each one of them shows us something different, even about ourselves. Look into the Word of God. You will see a reflection 
What you choose to do with that reflection is entirely up to you. Let me show you why I can say that. Let's go to James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 22, and we will touch on a couple of the other passages that were just listed up there about mirrors. But let's start with what James has to say. James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now it is really quite interesting the way James describes this idea of the Word of God being a mirror. It is so much bigger than anything Bolivia has ever experienced. It sits so much higher than anyone has ever driven to. The Word of God is such a powerful mirror that when we look into it, we can see. We can see. But for a lot of people, they choose not to. They make mistakes with the mirror that is the Word of God. There are at least three very intentional mistakes. There's the person who only gives a cursory glance. They never linger in the Word of God. It's like skipping a stone across the body of water. That's how they read the Bible. A lot of times this is what that sounds like. Oh, I just open my Bible every day and wherever God takes me, that's what I read. Sometimes that's good. But when you want to get into the depth of the Word of God and you really want to study it, you have to do more than just open it up to random spots and spend 10 or 15 minutes there and then move on to the next spot. You have to choose to linger in the Word of God to get in there so that you can really see what it's saying. The reason a number of people like to study Scripture that way is it keeps them from ever getting into the depth of the Bible. Therefore, they can never be convicted of anything. It will never cost them anything. So they skip a rock across the top. And then they skip another one across the top. And every day they do the same thing and they feel good about it because they're putting a check mark in a box saying, I read the Bible today, but they didn't linger there. That's a huge mistake. And then James tells us about this other one where people will actually linger in the Word of God, where they will hear what it has to say. They will look deeply into the mirror. But then as soon as they hear it, they forget it. And that can happen whether they're reading it themselves or whether they hear it proclaimed by a preacher. Whatever the case might be, the Spirit stirs something deep within them and they believe that they ought to act upon what they just heard because they saw something not only about God, but about themselves. But as soon as they're done, they they forget about it. That happens at church on Sunday mornings. People will hear something from the Bible and they'll think, gosh, I want to do something with that. And by 5 o'clock Sunday night, they can't remember what they heard. Or by Monday morning, they have walked away from it. They have chosen a different path. Isaiah, the old prophet, figured out a different way to approach that, to hear something from God and to be so moved by it that it redefines your life. Let me show you what Isaiah did. This is in the sixth chapter of his book, starting in verse 1. Listen to what he writes. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now listen, verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When Isaiah looked into the presence of God, when he saw God for who he really was and what he wanted from him, listen to his response, Woe to me! For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I need to do something about it. From that point forward in chapter 6, Isaiah said, Lord, whenever you need somebody, I am here. I am ready. I'll carry your message. I will carry your message. And God did the most incredible thing with him. He had one of the angels pick up a burning coal out of the altar of incense and fly it over to where Isaiah was at, holding it in tongues. He touched his lips. And from that day forward, Isaiah had scarred lips so that he would never forget. He would never forget. But James tells us back in James chapter 1, people do the exact same thing that Isaiah did. They look into the holiness of God. They are convicted by something, but they never go so far as to say, woe is me. They never go so far as to say, this is who I am. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. They're never changed. Because of that, after they've been in the presence of the Lord, after they have been in His Word, they just go the other way and they forget what they heard. They forget what they heard. They looked into the perfect mirror of God and they forgot what they saw. They went the other way. And there's another group of people, James would talk about them, that look into the perfect Word of God, into the mirror that reflects who He is. They linger there. They spend time reading the Scriptures. They know what to do. They know what is right and what God wants. And they willingly willfully go the other way. They choose to ignore it, to do what they want, believing that they have received just rewards here and that's all they want. But that is all they will receive. When we willfully choose to go the other way, we are inviting the judgment of God. And the only rewards you will ever have are the ones that you receive here. There is something much worse waiting. And we have to be totally aware of that. Isaiah would write about that as well as he talks about the Word of God bringing the judgment of God. A mirror will be referenced. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 3 starting in verse 18. He is speaking about judgment that will fall on Jerusalem and Judah. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Here's what he's saying. Isaiah is saying everything that the world would put forward as success and of value, when the judgment of God falls on you, it will be taken away including the mirrors that allow you to look into the perfect Word of God. They will be gone. The judgment of God, they will be gone. They are taken away. In verse 24, he says, Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. 
Instead of a belt, a rope. I really wish this part wasn't in here. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. That's the judgment of God. And when we look into the perfect Word of God, when we look into the mirror that is the Word of God and the conviction of the Spirit comes as a result of it and we choose to walk the other way, that's all that's left. That is all that's left. And there's people that willfully, willingly do that. They have lingered in the Word of God. They know the truth of God. And they have willingly chosen to go the other way. The judgment of the Lord is waiting the judgment of the Lord is voice. Restoration takes place. And it's because of him that I ended up in the most unique of places. I want to take you there. Exodus chapter 38. If you get the weekly letter that I send out on Fridays or Saturday mornings, you know that I spent a lot of time with this this past week, probably too much time. I spun out after I found this in Wearsby's teaching. And, and man, it took me all kinds of different places, but I was so intrigued by it. So intrigued. And let me show you why. I told you we were going to get into some Bible study. This is a fun part of Bible study right here. If you love the Word of God, this is the kind of stuff that will just make you go, wow. Here we go. Exodus chapter 38, verse 8. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's just one verse. Let me give it to you again. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, you might be thinking, I'm not exactly sure why it is yet, Phil, so here, let me help you. When Moses was building the tabernacle, the temporary dwelling for the Lord, and they were moving it around in the wilderness, it was this huge tent. But inside the tent, they still had certain things that were used in the worship of the Lord. One of those was the altar of sacrifice. Moses had to build the altar of sacrifice, and you can read about that in Exodus chapter 38 as well. Then between the altar of sacrifice, there was this bronze basin, and then the holy place where God resided. So when the priest would go into the tabernacle, they would offer the sacrifices on the altar of sacrifice. Then they would go to the basin, the bronze basin, where they would wash their hands and feet before they entered the holy place where they would minister before the Lord. Same pattern every time. They would come back into the tabernacle. They would offer the sacrifices on the altar of sacrifice. Then they would go to the basin, wash their hands and feet, and then go on into the holy place. Always the pattern. Always the pattern. Kind of cool the way it worked. In fact, really cool the way it worked. But the thing that is so intriguing is the metal that he chose to use to make the basin. Moses could have used gold, he could have used silver, he could have used copper, he could have used onyx, he could have used any number of different things. He chose this bronze. And not just any bronze, it was the bronze that the women had made their mirrors out of. So he melted it down, broke it, did whatever he did, and he fashioned the stand out of the bronze, and then he fashioned the basin out of bronze, and then he filled it with water for the priests to wash their hands and their feet. Now, this is cool. Why? Why? It is Wearsby's belief, and several other people, once I finally got into some places that would talk about this, that would say the same thing. Because when the priests stood above that basin, 
they had to see a reflection. They saw the water and they saw a reflection. The water symbolized the word of God. And all through scripture, water symbolizes the word of God. Here are a few examples. Number one, we are washed clean from the words of God. The Bible, the word of God, symbolizing water. That's John 15, verse 3. The church is sanctified through the washing of his word. The word and water coming together. It's symbolic in nature, but it still comes together. We are washed by the word of God, sanctified by it. When the sinner trusts Christ, he is once for all washed clean. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, or Romans chapter 6, verses 1-4. through 4. Take a look at this. We'll just put it up here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's the symbolic nature of being baptized in water, washed clean, that we might walk in the newness of life. All of that symbolism comes together to show us what the water is like, why it is so important and so significant. The priests were still men. And after they had offered all of those sacrifices, they were already clean. The atonement had already happened. But before they could enter the presence of God, it was necessary for them to wash their hands and feet to get the dirt of the world off of them before they came into the presence of the Lord. That's pretty cool. They had to get the dirt of the world off of them before they entered the presence of God. Number four, when we come into the presence of God, our hands and feet need some cleaning. If we are a Christian, we are always invited into the presence of God, but we still carry with us some of the dirt of the world. And by getting into the Bible, we have the opportunity for that to get cleaned up. Let me take you to John chapter 13, just so you'll understand this. This is verses 1 through 11, familiar verses. Here we go. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. You see, if you're a believer, you've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been covered by the grace of God. But still, as you make your way through life, the dirt of the world is on your hands and your feet. 
By getting into the Word, by getting into your Bible, you have the water that can cover that and cleanse it and wipe it away. But it happens. This is where this is so cool. When you see your reflection in the Word of God. When you see yourself. When you can see and acknowledge what's really going on. So Moses made the basin out of mirrors to show us that even when we are covering ourselves with the Word, washing ourselves with the Word, we are looking squarely into it to see the reflection and know what we choose to do with it. Which leads then to the third use of the mirror, which is transformation. It is transformation. Because you see, we get to see the progress that we are making. When we look into the Word and we examine ourselves, and even when we have been restored by the washing of water, by allowing the dirt of the world on our hands and our feet to be wiped out, then a transformation follows. Moses, when he would go into the tent of meeting, would meet with God. And when he would come out, his face would literally glow. It would literally glow from being in the presence of God. And over the course of time, that glowing would fade. It was called the Shekinah glory of God. The glory of the Lord would fade, and Moses didn't like the fading nature of it, so he would put a veil over his face so people couldn't see it as it faded. Then he would go back into the presence of God, and he would be filled back up with the glory of God, and his face would shine with the Shekinah glory of God. But then when he would leave, his face would fade again. The glory would fade, so he would put the veil in place. Well, the Bible says, when we stare intently into the Word of God, we are in the presence of God, continually being washed and covered and cleansed by the Word so that that transformation remains. It always remains. No veil is necessary because the transformation is visible. Listen to this from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For this day, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. That word beholding can also be translated reflecting. Reflecting the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When the transformation happens, when the word washes over you and you respond to it, you don't just hear it and then forget it or choose to rebel against it. But when it washes over you, a transformation happens and the glory of the Lord becomes visible. You start to carry the gospel message with you everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. The transformation is there because you have read the word and you have responded to the word and the glory of the Lord is visible. That's good stuff. And maybe, just maybe, that's why Moses chose the mirrors when he made that basin so that when we are looking into the word of God, we must see ourselves. We must see ourselves and then wash the dirt of the world off of our feet and our hands. The glory of the Lord has already filled us, but that gets rid of the dirt so that it becomes visible. So there's transformation. 
Well, we might ask this question, why wouldn't anybody want that? Why wouldn't everybody want that? Well, as we wrap this message up, and it'll only take a few minutes, I want to show you. James, back in James chapter 1, says that there are people that solely want to be hearers of the Word. They don't want to be doers of the Word. So we have to ask ourselves, how do you become only a hearer, and then how do you move past that to become a doer? And those are really good questions that I'm thrilled you ask. So let's start with how a person becomes only a hearer of the Word. A guy named George Stoddard has done a lot of research on this. He's a professor at the Ph.D. level. So he did a bunch of research to discover how it is that people can hear the Word of God and know the Word of God and choose not to do the Word or live the Word. He says that there are four reasons that he has identified. Here they are. Number one is relativism. Number two, superstition. Number three, emotionally. And number four, theoretically. Now let's break those down. Relativism says that when we look into the Word of God and we linger there and we know what it says but we choose not to do it because of relativism, we are saying that it was written to a group of people a long time ago and it doesn't apply to me. All of that is cultural. So relativism says that that's not intended for me. That's not intended for today. That's not intended for the world that I live in. Therefore, I don't have to pay attention. In essence, people that buy into that philosophy are saying that culture trumps content all the time. That whatever I want to do is what I want to do. That's relativism. And a lot of people get there. They want to be students of the Word of God. They want to believe that they are spending time with God, but they don't want it to apply. So they find a way out, a loophole, if you will. Number two, there's a group of people that see Scripture solely as superstition. Believing that if they spend a certain amount of time reading their Bible, whether it soaks in or not, They are covered by it, thus making the Bible a form of a magic wand. Because I spent 15 minutes reading my Bible today, because I listened to my Bible app for 10 minutes today, because I had Scripture playing while I was in the shower, I have done my due diligence, therefore God will bless me, God will honor me, God will cover me. It's like waving a magic wand over everything that we do. It makes the Bible very superstitious, very mystical, and very magical. And by the way, my friends, it doesn't work. So if all you're doing is skipping a rock across the top of the water, it means nothing. You have to linger there in such a way that it is going to become a part of you. And you're going to do something with it. Well, there's also a group of people that approach Scripture emotionally which means that they are always reading Scripture with this question. What is that going to do for me? How is that going to make me feel? And a lot of times when folks read Scripture emotionally, they're looking for passages that make them happy or fill them up with joy. They're solely looking for what they want to hear. So they will avoid any other passage. I'm only going to read that which makes me happy. I will cut out every other portion. Well, that's what it means to be a hearer of the Word only. You're only looking for what you want, and nothing else matters. Then there's a group of people that only read Scripture theoretically. They read it for the intellectual side of it. The only thing that they are looking for is enough information so that they can argue or debate with somebody else philosophically or theologically. 
They want to sit down and get into an argument with you and try to trap you in some different things because that's what they love doing. I have folks like that in my life that come to my office and they'll have a question and you can tell instantly that it isn't a real question. They think they can trap the Bible. So they want to throw it out that way. I'm sure Deanie has dealt with the same thing. Anybody on our staff or any of our elders has dealt with the exact same thing. They are people that are only interested in the intellect of Scripture. That's it. People that fit in those four categories tend to, according to Stoddard, be nothing but hearers of the Word. Doers of the Word are people that linger in the Word of God and do what it says. They just do what it says. If the Bible says it, they do it. No questions. They just do it. John Hightower attended church here for a number of years. He was instrumental in helping us get the Celebrate Recovery ministry going. Before he died, he shared his testimony. And one of my favorite parts of John's testimony was he would tell us over and over and over again, I learned this and I did it. Gene, do you remember that? I learned this and I did it. And that was just John. I just did it. He was a doer of the word. Well, you may say, I, I want to be that, but I don't know how because when I open my Bible, it can be confusing. Well, let me give you a place to start. If you want to become a doer of the Word, go to Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It is the Sermon on the Mount. If you read it from beginning to end at the pace that I read, it takes 18 minutes. But here's the cool thing. Jesus delivered that sermon, most powerful sermon ever preached. In those 18 minutes, you will find 20 different headings, at least in my Bible, 20 different headings that you can break them down one by one. They're very practical and spend literally months exploring each one of them in Scripture until you have looked at every one of those headings and asked, where am I at in this? As you look into the perfect mirror that is God's Word, where am I at in this? And then you do it. You just do what's revealed. At the end of chapter 7, Jesus would say this, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He's talking to people that looked intently into the Word of God and never did anything with it. Even though they thought they were out doing good, they never did anything with it. They were never restored and they were never transformed. All they did was hear the Word of God and then go and try to do something. They never allowed transformation to happen. He goes on in verse 24 to say this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. What we do when we look into the perfect Word of God and we see the reflection of who God is and who we are and we bring them together because this is where heaven and earth meet. We bring them together determines whether we live life wise or as a fool. Our choice. Our choice. Those are Jesus' words. And James heard them. And he wrote about it in the first chapter. 